So I do not know what's going on in the ATP. I just don't have a friend, the bandwidth. <laughs> so, wishing them luck. everybody welcome back to the body serve i am jonathan and i'm james i feel like we start every episode and every recap with wow that was rough no and i think i mean <laughs> 2017 well that was rough the australian open which one wasn't rough french open wasn't rough right i think we need to flip the script a little bit because majors are are exhausting and we're not even there like covering it day in day out um but it's a a shit show yes i mean this this wasn't even our fault it wasn't a matter of lack of engagement it wasn't a matter of us not being interested in certain players of us being haters bad-minded dark-sided this tournament just had a lot of built-in mess and a lot of shall we say bad actors (laughs) <laughs> the table had already been set right with the the russian and belarusian ban hanging over it the uh refusal to award ranking points there was already some bad juju associated with this wimbledon the uh <laughs> the critics called it an exhibition and it was very unclear what to expect from this event and on the men's side you got in one sense an extremely predictable outcome Somebody who is so incredibly far ahead of the field at Wimbledon for the past four years. Okay. Uh, And then the the runner-up was a bit of a surprise. In totality, over the last four years, yes. At this tournament, I don't think that was necessarily the case. And he could have been beaten. In fact, should have been beaten. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we say this a lot now, right? Novak... In his 30s, his mid to late 30s, is almost more dangerous than he was. Because he can lose sets and just flip a switch. He's like, nobody knows how to compete with him. And I I shouldn't say nobody, because he does lose, of course. Okay, we'll save this for the men's stuff, because we're going to start with the woman. But it's not just him. It's Nadal. And it's an indictment on everybody else. Because it's absolutely absurd and ridiculous at this point. For those two men to be doing what they did this year on the slam stage and have the minions just fall away by the wayside. (laughs) It is. On the women's side, we got yet another first-time slam winner. And we were guaranteed that based on the semifinal matchups. Elena Rybakina, you may have heard by now all over Twitter that she had a great start to 2020. And then the pandemic derailed her progress. Have you heard that? I know we have probably said it on the show 10 times. Not that many. <laughs> I mean, but then it, it we had to be reminded as well. Let's not pretend like we're always up to speed with what's no, going I'm, on. No, I'm not trying to brag. I'm saying that was we were sort of like a broken record about that, or I was. And then it, it went around on Twitter, so I feel like it's a cliche at this point. Oh, I'm just saying, I well, maybe I should speak for myself. I needed a reminder of that. Oh, okay. In this household... I think it's fair to say that we were rooting for Ons Jabeur. Yeah, but 
you know, I really wanted Ons to win, but I'm certainly not upset with the outcome. I've been a fan of Elena for a long time. I, as you know, just love when somebody can unleash this kind of ferocious power. Yes, she plays a brand of tennis that is very much in your aesthetic wheelhouse. <laughs> How, I, I mean, you know, not not necessarily the ideal for me, because she's really not very good at the net. I mean, she's still young. That can come. It didn't stop her from trying. Oh, no, not at all. So I think I want to start with what what was the most impressive thing about this final for me is that she was thoroughly outplayed in the first set and didn't really seem to have a lot of answers. Ans was able to kind of toy with her, even returning balls short on purpose to draw her to the net because she was so ineffective in the first set at the net. And... Early in the second set, you just saw something shift. Like, she was able to just really think about how to start attacking, stop falling for the the variety and the slices and everything, and impose her style. Uh, I, was, I was just really impressed with her kind of mid-match thought process. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to think about what you're going to do. It's another thing to put it into practice. And as we know... Miss Rabakina plays a brand of tennis with small margins, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And that results in streaky play at times, periods where the ball is just spraying all over the place. But what we saw from her in this tournament for an extended period is her being able to harness that power and sustain it for long periods against her opponent. Some of those backhands that she hit i mean say nothing of the backhand that she used on match point down the line to beat simona Halla. <laughs> that was a mortal combat flawless victory that oh match. my lord on her first match point yeah well the entire match was an, a, oh, yeah. a complete demolition now i'm not surprised that there was i don't want to say a letdown but there of course there were nerves in the final and she didn't come out playing like she did against simona Against Simona, she completely overpowered her. Simona's serve was just not there at all. Now, Ons, on the other hand, is an effective server, is an effective spot server, will rush you and come forward. And Elena only won four return points in the first set, which is a really shocking stat for someone like her. Mm -hmm. You're really setting the stage here, the scene for (laughs) this big comeback, for this shift in momentum. I wanted to talk about the match because we will basically not talk about the men's final at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a warning. We'll talk about them, but uh, the match I'm not interested in. But I think as Elena got more accurate, Ons, uh, she kind of suffers from having too much variety sometimes, right? This is a common problem with people with too many tools, and she wasn't always making the right decision. Well, she was also missing on basic rally balls as well. Way too many Mm -hmm. backhand Mm -hmm. cross errors. Way long beyond the baseline. But I have to say, like, it did... You know, with Jabor, it never feels like it's over. Sometimes she has a lapse in, in a second set and can turn it around again. I didn't feel early in the third set that, okay, Rybakin is just going to run away with it. But she did. Well, until... Ons had triple break point on Rybakina's serve to get back on serve in that third set. 
and Elena won every last one of those five points to win and hold. Mm-hmm. And then double break happened, and that was that. <laughs> From that point, when she saved a triple break point, that was a steadying moment for her, for me, in that final. Elena broke serve again right after that, and then served it out on her first match point. Wins the tournament, very calmly walks to the net, and shakes hands. <laughs> this A lot was made of this, her mm-hmm. sort of icy uh, reaction. And if you have watched her before, this is definitely just her i don't know why there was so much interest in the way that she reacted yes it was certainly muted it's unusual uh, especially for your first but it's like not that interesting when you consider that a typical reaction of oh my god i can't believe it falling down on the back making grass angels on center court like that's done every time grazing that's done every time that in and of itself is not interesting we get it all the time (laughs) So why are we trying to force this out of this young woman? Yes, I guess spectators want that, uh, like that release of energy. It's an ending. It puts a cap on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone processes things the same way. Yeah, I'm I'm here for it. It certain. It felt like there was nothing false about her reaction. A lot of times, too, and I'm glad this wasn't the case with talking about Elena. When folks have these run-of-the-mill, nonplussed reactions, it's often taken to mean cockiness. Mm -hmm. That, oh, well, yeah, I expected to win, so I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. But, I mean, this is just who she is, period. (laughs) Right. And you saw in her speech, she got emotional when asked about her parents. She did the same in her press conference. So it's not like nothing was breaking through here. It's just that she reacts in her very own way. Now, the other thing people wanted to talk about was her living in Moscow and Mm. uh, being a Russian despite changing her nationality to Kazakh and representing the Kazakhstan Tennis Federation. Years ago at this point. Years ago. And there was a story going around about why Elena changed to Kazakhstan. And it's a very common story. And this country in particular has, I guess, poached a lot of promising Russian players in the past decade or so and it's because these are usually players who the russian tennis federation doesn't want to invest in and in this case rebecca's family didn't have a whole lot of money to support her junior tennis career and so they found an avenue where she could get sponsorship if she went to kazakhstan uh so i don't at this point i don't really know how we're supposed to feel about the ranking points and the ban and whether or not this is good or ironic or whatever about having a Russian-born female champion. It's honestly super annoying to me because as the tournament went on, it became something where people were trying to score Twitter points. Get some retweets, get some likes. Oh my gosh, they didn't want a Russian, but look, in the next five rounds, if these two people stay on track... Then they could be the ones. And then it's like kept building, 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 building. And there's like, oh my God, if Rebakana actually does it, then we can actually fulfill this narrative that we've been peddling for the last few days. When in fact, when you get to that part of the tournament, this is not a player issue. What does Rebakana have to do with this? Her switch in allegiance to Kazakhstan happened years ago. Yes. This has nothing to do with her. It's circumstantial. 
And so when you ask her about this in the press conference after she's won her title and say, well, what do you think about Putin? What do you repudiate? What do you think about the war? That is squarely not the place and time for me. Because at that point, with everything that's happened, these are questions that you need to be asking the All England Lawn and Tennis Club, the ATP, and the WTA. Like, this is something that they have brought about. The fact that we don't have ranking points, the fact that Rabakina will not be top 10 because of this win, is because of the WTA and the ATP and Wimbledon. But what I want to know is, like, what do you expect to get from the question, right? What are the reasonable answers that you expect to hear? It's either I am not going to comment, which will be taken as unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. She'll either, I mean, the unlikeliest outcome is that she's like, yeah, I'm all, all, all for it. All for the war. That would never happen. And the third option, what you really want to hear, what I imagine the reporters are gunning for is, no, I don't support the war but why why would you put a Russian player in this position to potentially expose themselves or their families to risk? Well, you just slipped there. She's a Kazakh player who uh, supposedly sure. resides in Moscow. But they identified her as Russian, right? And she was she's from Russia. I'm not, you know, I'm not lying about that. The point is she identifies as Kazakh. That's who she's playing for. What people tell you they are, that's what they are. Okay, but the premise is, asking that question, the premise is that she's not really Kazakh. Well, yeah. That you're really really Russian, you live in Russia, your family's there, blah, blah, blah. This question has weight, as far as that reporter is concerned, because of this narrative that's been peddled. Mm -hmm. That it's going to be a Russian-born player who is going to win this anti-Russia, Belarusian Wimbledon. And also, are you implying that she is somehow not supposed to be here, right? Like, that she she found a loophole to enter this tournament? I know that wasn't said, but it is sort of like an ugly insinuation, I think. But my point here is, call up Steve Simon. Are you happy with the result? Right, right. How do you feel this worked out for you? Call up those crumpet and tea and Wimbledon strawberry cream people and ask them, <laughs> are you happy with how this turned mm-hmm. out? Now, you know Steve Simon does keep it very close to the vest, so you're probably not going to get much. But I I see your point. Let's move on from this, because there's nothing more interesting to be said about it. Moving on to what? The Minister of Happiness? <laughs> yes, the self-proclaimed Minister of Happiness, Al Shabur. Her first career semifinal at a slam, obviously her first final. She's, we're always talking about firsts with Ans. She's the first Arab player, period of any gender, and the first African woman to achieve this. There have been South African and Zimbabwean men, but not women. On the the Minister of Happiness thing, I wanted to note uh, a great observation from Courtney Nguyen about Anza's mentality and how there's been a real shift in, I think, the way that she approaches matches and, like, the tour in general. So Courtney observed that Anz was really crushed by from losing in the Charleston final to Benchich, but she moved on very quickly. She won Madrid really shortly after that. She lost in the first round of Roland Garros as one of the favorites for the title and immediately moved to grass and wins Berlin. And previously, like these losses could be very crushing. It could take her longer to recover, but she's really just 
dusted herself off each time this season and has put together a, the very clear number two season behind Iga Shriantek. There's an argument to be made that Ons did not have the most difficult path to the final. Certainly compared to Rabakina's path, it paled in comparison. Mm-hmm. But Rabakina did not have the weight of expectation that Ons did. And that is not something to be taken lightly or discounted in these tournaments. Mm-hmm. Because there were quite a few matches where Ons was down and managed to turn it around and get to the finish line against Boskova in the quarterfinals and against Tatiana Marie in the semis. Ons beat one seeded player throughout the tournament. It was number 24, Elisa Martins. She faced Boskova in the quarters, as you said, and Boskova herself took out a few top players. Right, cleared the path a little bit. And uh, and that unseated scary floater and Carolyn Garcia. And so again, like you you play the players who are in front of you, right? There's no use going through a draw and saying, well, this is the the average ranking of the people that this person beat. They beat them, she won six matches, what can you do? Is there a special consideration for a player ranked 120 who beat two top thirty players? You know, does that 120 mm-hmm. get quartered in that consideration? Right. If you get a walkover into a later round, does that uh, get, you know, a- added as a zero to your score? <laughs> and to your point, talking about what Courtney said, I'm less concerned than I would be normally about a potential crushing nature of this defeat for Ons. Right. It's going to be crushing regardless, but she, you know, she put on her big girl pants and gave a great speech and... Made everybody laugh in her press conference and... Also, her profile has never been higher. We talk all the time about the firsts that she's achieved. These firsts are coming to fruition in the way she's being received by the public at large. Not just in the Arab world, but around the world. You know, for for a while, I imagine that maybe she grappled with some feelings of imposter syndrome and Mm. when folks like you are out here looking for the next big babe game the next Rebakina to come and you know blast her way to the title Anz is the antithesis of that and when the narrative is so heavily shifted toward a certain type of game a certain type of player when somebody like Anz with that type of game has results it's often seen as well, that was cute. Good for her. Yeah, but she should have hit through those backhands. <laughs> you know? But no, my, but I mean, but that's the conversation. Is, and sometimes that's true. Okay, but I'm saying that she is the new normal. Her game is part of the landscape. Anjabur is embedded in the WTA penthouse. Yes. Right now. Yes. There's nothing fraudulent about it. She deserves her flowers. She deserves the spoils that she's enjoying right now. Mm-hmm. She's earned it. And on that subject, I imagine that she's been hearing, oh, you're the first to do this, to do that, all these things. And she's probably like, that's awesome. But I want a lot more. You know, I don't want to be the first Arab woman to reach a quarterfinal. I want to win Wimbledon. I want to win Roland Garros. Like her goals are much higher and they are within sight. They're achievable. And on that note of the kind of the celebrations of being the first everything. She also wrote this piece 
And she mentioned in it that her parents couldn't get a visa to the UK. And she didn't really explain in the piece the circumstances. She didn't say uh, whether they applied and were denied. She clarified later on that they didn't apply for a visa because it was too late. But I did want to bring it up because a lot of people took that as a, oh, well, everything's fine then. If they didn't apply, then that's fine. But I think like the conditions around how difficult it is to get a visa and how long it takes to get a visa to the UK, to the US, that is a problem. Like that is an inequity, right? So when we're, Wimbledon can celebrate all these firsts, but the fact that it took so long for those firsts to achieve is not an accident. Those are structural barriers. And when the minister, the, the, what, the UK, the English, British minister in Tunisia is saying, oh, we wish your parents could have been there, tweeting that. What? Well, what is that? Isn't that you? Like, is there no expedited process? Did anybody reach out to that? It's very weird. Why would you tweet that? It's a fact of life that based on where you're born, completely arbitrarily, you face added geographical, structural, governmental barriers to travel and move around the world. And that is inherently unfair. Right. So to, you know, in one sense, yes, we should celebrate her being the first African woman to do all these things, all these amazing things. There is an embedded inequality in that. Like it's not, it's not an accident that those things were difficult to achieve based on what part of the world you're from. There's a built-in colonial racist history and element to visas to who is able to travel from one country to another to who is welcomed to live in certain areas we see this all the time it's the basis of immigration well yeah and in the uk we're what just a few years out from windrush like these are very much contemporary problems and just a, a note a shout out really to Reem Avalil, who is a journalist who has been following Ons since way before anybody wanted to talk about Ons Shabur, right? She made forced people to care about her and now she's a big star. If you didn't know much about Ons Shabur and you went and Googled her name, clicked on news articles, probably 95% of them were written by Reem Avalil. So the history and the success and the rise of Anjabur is necessarily tethered to the work and the the rise of Rim Abalil as well. And where this becomes especially poignant to this discussion is that Reem herself could not get a visa to come to this tournament because of red tape issues. Right. And so we're we're not airing her business. She tweeted about this very openly about the frustration uh, and the fact that she was given a visa for the wrong dates too late, couldn't travel to the UK to literally just do her job and go home. To potentially see the person she's been covering most throughout her career reach the zenith of her career. Mm. In the semifinals, Ons beat Tatiana Maria, and a super surprising result, to be frank, for Tatiana Maria to make the semifinals <laughs> of Wimbledon. Yes. Again, somebody who who kind of swept away a lot of the seeds in Anza's path. I mentioned Tatiana because I would like everybody to pour one out, alcoholic or not, for 
Tatiana Maria for what she did at this tournament. Not just making the semifinals, having never been past the, what, third round at any slam before in her career? 34 years old. And at this tournament, she beat Sorona Kirstea. Amazing. That alone was an amazing result. One that was much appreciated. <laughs> and then she beats Maria Sakari. And then she beats Yelena Ostapenko. And as Ostapenko is wont to do, she goes on to say, well, I lost this match. She didn't win it. <laughs> yes, that is very much her move. But this was a draw that Yelena could have had fun with. And she's young. There will be a lot more opportunities. But she was one of the, really, the chief contenders mm -hmm. starting in the second week. She was an actual favorite at this tournament. Yeah. She's played well over the last year or so. And she's no longer just a cautionary tale. She's somebody who's worked her way back to being part of the conversation. But the conversation that she wants to have all the time is how she's better than everybody else. And the only reason why she loses is because she did not play like how she should play. And I know we all enjoy when Yelena talks her shit because it's entertaining. And more power to her to have that self-belief. But at this point, you keep on losing. I thought you said she's had a very good year. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm saying at a certain point, you talk this kind of shit, this level of shit, if you are at a certain level. And she is not. Well, okay, I, I get it. But I still enjoy it. And I... You can do both. I'm just saying it is... It's kind of gross. <laughs> gross? I mean, it's it's poor sportsmanship. Like, she's a poor loser, definitely. Yeah, but that, I that's mean, gross to me. It's not, like, problematic. It's, gro it's gross okay. to me. All right. Like, Tatiana Murray is over here having this tournament of her life... And here comes Ostapenko to be like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> well, she can say what she wants, but Maria is in the semifinals and she is making her exit right now. And I'm saying she can say what she wants, but I'm not going to pay her any mind because she keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again and mm -hmm. not winning. Okay. At a certain point, you got to win something big mm -hmm. to be talking like that. That's all. Jane McManus tweeted with respect to the discourse around Tatiana Maria and mothers having success in tennis. And I thought this was insightful when she said, you know, tennis hasn't always had players take time off, have a child, come back and have success. And we in tennis, covering tennis, talking about tennis, treat it as some kind of unicorn achievement. When Serena came back and made finals at slams repeatedly, like, oh my god, oh my god. When in fact, top athletes in many other sports do this all the time. Something in tennis has shifted. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just, you see players playing longer in general, but there have been a lot of women who came back from giving birth to have big success, or just come back to their normal careers. And Jane's point, I think, was that maybe it's not that crazy. Like, maybe mm -hmm. it's not that abnormal that, oh, you could go through childbirth and the recovery and be a top athlete. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price uh, obviously is doing incredible things. But Allison Felix, like so many women in other sports do it. Margaret Court did it. We just don't have a contemporary template in tennis. Because for the longest time, well, Serena, 28 years old, was 
longing the tooth for a tennis player. Yeah, yeah. And so the conventional way of looking at a tennis player's career was that it's it's one spurt. You've got one chance, you give it all you got, and then you retire and have a family. Now that's no longer the case. Now we have that template. As you said, Margaret Court did it. Yvonne Gulagong did it. Kim Clijsters is sort of the modern template, mm-hmm. but she was an anomaly for a while, mm-hmm. right? So I think uh, like a lesson to me from that is to, yes, celebrate it when it happens, but don't act like it's impossible. I mentioned earlier how much of a beatdown Simona Halep received at the hands of Elena Rybakina in that semifinal. And I'm not here to rehash all of that, per se, because it was still a good result for Simona. It was. She told us that she had considered seriously retiring at the start of the year. Didn't have a good result at the French Open. Has had, you know, some injury stuff pop up again here and there. So this was good for her. What I want to draw attention to here is the look on Patrick Maratoglou's face as his charge was charged off that court. It was <laughs> delicious. He has some explaining to do because I don't I have no idea what the plan was here. Was Rybakina unbeatable on that day? I mean, well Simona could not get a serve. Right. Well, That's I yeah. mean that is on her. At that well, sure. Sure. But what was the plan? We watched Simona take the racket out of Serena's hands in 2019 and Patrick was on the losing end of that. He was on the losing end of this too. I'm not saying it's his fault. But he does paint himself a target because he is so loud and out there with everything. Mm-hmm. I, I have nothing more to add on this. I just wanted to mm. to highlight that visual of his <laughs> suffering from the stands. Yes. All right. I think it's time to move on to the men. And this is going to be a bit of an unconventional recap for us because you and I kind of agreed that this was a deeply unappealing final for us Mm -hmm. it just wasn't interesting uh it was very low priority which is unusual because of what we do (laughs) and what we're sort of tasked with during majors for a moment there we thought maybe rogers had spared us from having to watch (laughs) this match because of the nationwide outage the internet outage on championship weekend yes If you haven't heard, one of Canada's largest telecom companies completely went down on Friday, pretty much all day Friday. Rogers Communications, founded by your great-grandfather, Theodore James Rogers. (laughs) Yeah, right. We share a name, but not the money, unfortunately. Um, I'm not from this country, by the way. Anyway, Canadian telecom is extremely concentrated, so there are very few providers. And uh, debit machines across the country were down. If you had the same company provide your cell service and internet, you were screwed. You know, it was a small hardship for us. But I was thinking, as it got to be very late on Friday, it's like, oh, we're not going to get the women's final. It was Friday night approaching midnight. And (laughs) normally we have wings and And watch watch, Drag Race. We watch All Star 7. It's a nice little tradition we've been having because we have no life. We didn't even have wings. For that Friday, so we should have known something was going to go awry. (laughs) And then I'm falling asleep in my chair, and then Drag Race just pops up. Ugh. Midnight. Like manna from heaven. Midnight Friday, our internet was restored. But back to the men's side of things. 
Novak Djokovic wins his 21st major, beating Nick Kyrgios, a first-time finalist. Four sets. This is Novak's fourth straight Wimbledon since 2018. 2020 did not happen. As I said earlier, nobody is touching him on the surface right now. People are winning sets. In some cases, they're winning two sets. But after they win those two sets, hope is snuffed out. He's just really far ahead of everyone here. See, again, I think Rafa was playing himself into a position where he could have challenged him in that final. I, and I also I think that Matteo Berrettini had a chance. Right, but we saw what happened last year. Well, this was this year. Mm-hmm. He won two lead-ups heading into the tournament. Okay, he won Queens last year as well. And I'm saying the level that Novak showed at this tournament was not peak Novak. No, of course. It, he didn't need it. My point is, I'm just saying again, <laughs> if is a dangerous word, but there were scenarios that had they played out, this could have been an interesting final. It could, sure. I mean, I wasn't interested. There was nothing that could have made me interested, to be totally honest. But sure, it could have been a better match. Let's start with what the broadcasters didn't want to talk about. But the huge elephant in the room is that early last week, word came out from the Canberra Times that Nick had been summoned to court to face a charge of common assault, which was filed by his ex-girlfriend Kiara Passari. This is a charge that carries a maximum sentence of two years. He's, to be clear, is not considered charged under Australian law until he actually appears before the court. I don't have any insight into Australian law, but his lawyers said that what the Canberra Times reported was misleading, that he hasn't officially been charged yet. This is, uh, the, the actual charge itself is describing a situation where he allegedly grabbed her. And we, we heard about this at the start of the year because Kiara had posted about it on social media. She had published on her social media texts from Nick, interactions with Nick, and none of it looked good at all. No, this has been, it's been floating around for a while and we purposely haven't really said anything about it because, you know, Kiara hadn't done an interview. It was just a series of Instagram stories. And honestly, I kind of wanted to stay away from it for a little while to see if, if it blew up further. But Kiara said that Nick's be quote behavior is very similar to Zverev's. She said he's almost the exact same in real life to how he is on court. Probably worse, to be honest. Nick is. Nick. His behavior on court is like how he is in real life. Right. And during the Australian Open, when the two were quarantined in a hotel, we had already heard that police had been called to the hotel because of a domestic disturbance and that the two were separated into two different rooms. She posted texts that were allegedly from Nick in which he tells her to the trigger warning to go unalive herself. So if those are real, it's not it's not great. Uh, so you can imagine how a lot of people weren't really in the mood to celebrate this final. Because it's happening concurrently with this narrative that's been the desire of so many for almost a decade for Nick Kyrgios to take his tennis seriously and fulfill the potential, fulfill his talent. Mm-hmm. He's finally in a Grand Slam final. But why, why, why does this have to happen now? Right. Well, the thing is, you don't need to reckon with it if you don't acknowledge that it happened at all. Mm-hmm. Right? 
But if you do acknowledge it, one of the things that we see happen in real time is how the goalposts shift. When Olya Sharapova came forward with her allegations, it's, well, well, why didn't she report it to the police? Here is a case where it has been reported to the police, but then we get the timing of it called into question. We get, we don't know if it's true, or, well, grabbing her isn't that bad. Let's just focus on the tennis. Right. And the timing thing is clearly ridiculous because she filed charges months ago. You know how long these things take to wind their way through courts. This is not like she planned to drop this bombshell during Wimbledon. This is what happened. But the other stuff is just, you're never going to please these people, right? You said, oh, well, we're, she's got to go to the police. That's the right avenue. There'll always be a way to discredit a woman who goes to the police. Uh, you'll just say that, well, the crime wasn't that bad. Or, well, we don't know if he did it. Of course, we, we don't know that he did it. And this but- is a, a case that has progressed through the Australian police system. And that in itself is a victory because we know right. that that isn't often the case whereby women who come forward with allegations, they get done to them in police stations what folks do to them on the internet. Yes. Yes. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Okay. So for a lot of commentators who either did not know this or chose not to talk about it, this did nothing to upend the narrative of, wow, bad boy reformed. He's really gotten his head into the game. You know, he can, he, there's no limit now to what he can achieve. I hope he continues along this path. And like, what? What? I don't really, to be honest, I do not see this path continuing. But also, Nick, once this story breaks, starts posting about children on social media, doing inspirational stuff. You know, we see the PR machinery in full force here after this story breaks. And one of the worrying things for me was, should he have won this title? This would have become even more difficult, a hill to climb for Kiara. Yes. But it would have amped up the coverage of the story. Possibly. Part of that, I think part of that resuscitation narrative is the bromance, which was officially ordained by Novak on center court after the match. But, you know, we got these Instagram stories between the two right before the final. I'm very cynical when it comes to Nick and Novak. So what I saw from that was Nick knows he's not going to win. So he's just sort of setting the table for that. Like, this is not serious. And also the years where Nick said like heinous shit about Novak and his fans literally years. No, but like his fans do not want to hear it. When you tweet that they're like, you're lying. Like, wait, wait a minute. I thought I was defending your fave here, but apparently not because now Nick is on the right side. He's on the correct side. So anything you say about him is anti Novak. But we've seen this with Novak recently, right? His, Oh, I need to, I needed to reach out to Tennis Sandgren because, you know, he really went to bat for me and he had some interesting things to say about how effed up U.S. immigration policy is with regard to COVID. And, you know, he really spoke truth to power and defended me. So, you know, 
I really appreciate that. And Nick did the same thing for him in yes. Australia. Don't forget, Nick, that's where this started. Nick did the same thing for him in Australia while Novak was persona non grata to most of the tennis world as he was detained in Australia trying to play the Australian Open. And so, all is forgiven, apparently. But let me tell you, if somebody said a third of the things, not even, if somebody said a tenth of the things that Nick Kyrgios said about Novak Djokovic to or about me, no ma'am. No. No (laughs) ma'am. But this development really isn't surprising if you've been watching Novak. He's developed these kind of random friendships with people who have reached out to him and offered support for his crackpot theories. Tennis Angren, Nick Kyrgios. But the kind of the uglier reading of this is that Nick was literally just summoned to court to hear a charge of assault against an ex-girlfriend last week. Now Novak is buddy-buddy with him. We saw how he posted about Zverev on his Instagram and Twitter while Zverev was going through the initial stages of that. He told Zverev to stay strong. He was an ardent defender of Justin Gimmelstab even after all those charges were filed against him in an assault case. And dude, I'm not like I'm not trying to make insinuations here that right all the information is out there for you to put together however you want. At the very least... It's just not a very good look. But this goes to show that, like, basically making an oath of loyalty to Novak is enough. If you've supported me in whatever weird controversy I've gotten myself into, that's enough. We're pales now. Of my own doing, but I will still position it as I'm being put upon. And if I don't, my wife certainly will. (laughs) So, So that was a thing that happened. Yelena Djokovic, uh, on the day of her wedding anniversary, and at the Wimbledon Ball. Mm-hmm. She had the time, apparently. Managed to get into it with Ben Rothenberg. And I will say, Ben, if you're listening, the anti-vax poster boy thing was a little bit extra. You you certainly did that. But why is Yelena engaging? Is he not an anti-vax poster boy at this point? Sure, but I mean, he knew the kind of engagement he was going to get with that. Okay. That has never stopped Ben Rothenberg. <laughs> no, before. not at all. That's why I'm I'm appealing to him directly. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying that's a label that Novak has earned. He's earned it. He wears it. Yes, and Yelena. Th- those are his politics. <sighs> yeah, she didn't really have a leg to stand on. She expressed herself very well, but then it got into like bullying and hatred, and it was a little bit much. I just want to know why is she. Why is she getting into it with a journalist she when has, this is like a great day in her life? She in expressed her family's herself life. well. She Are you did. just saying she was able to write in English well? Because there was a lot of like mumbo jumbo nonsense for me personally. <laughs> for you, for, for you, for, for me, me, for me personally. <laughs> I mean, it was coherent in that it, I was able to what, read it. That's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't flagged for misinformation. Mm. Was it sent over 5G towers? We're, we're not even going there. So, I don't know. The, the men's draw just left a very weird taste in my mouth. No, certainly no disrespect or questioning of what Novak has achieved here. Like, he's, I don't know. We've The superlatives that we've used over the past six, seven years on the show feel a little bit old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Often in the past, Novak's supporters have wanted us to laud him but also suspend or disgust 
at his behaviors, his myriad behaviors, that will never happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, yes, Novak, go, go on ESPN for that. It's just not, literally not what we do at all. Novak is an amazing tennis player, possibly the greatest of all time. Again, a conversation we are not interested in having, but have it. And if you come to that conclusion, you have reasons for it. And there are good reasons for it, <laughs> you know? Follow Andy Roddick on Twitter while he's live tweeting a match. That's the analysis you want. Not us. Mm-mm. Like, I'm not here. I can't separate the two. I can't separate yeah. the player from the person. And in a similar vein with Nick, I know a lot of people really like to latch on to the natural talent, his incredible hands. I mean, his serve is literally a thing of like fierce beauty right but i to be totally honest with you i don't love tennis enough to overcome everything else i'm not gonna watch a player and say i'm so taken by the aesthetic beauty of this person's game i'm gonna ignore everything i know about them that's just it's not how i watch tennis it's not how i approach sport um the abuse of it's the just lines me. People, like it's just me I don't know. the abuse of the chair empires the abuse of the crowd the abuse of his team. If, as a fan, I lose, I lose out on watching a one player with immense gifts, that's fine. Like, that doesn't really change my life that much. As of right now, the ATP now has, to my count, four players accused of domestic violence against a spouse. Yeah, three of the four are in court. There are probably more. There's, of course, Alexander Zverev. There's Nikolos Basilashvili. There is Thiago Saibuzh-Vuzh. And now, Nick Kyrgios. And Basilashvili is potentially in, implicated in a match-fixing scandal as well. Along with Aslan Karatsev. Yeah. So we'll wait to hear more about that before... I, I haven't had a chance to like dig into any of that stuff. I mean, this is something that we've heard rumblings of for a long time in the past. Uh, this is the first time that some serious research and reporting has shone some light on it. But we're still going to wait further yeah, to see how yeah. this plays out. I have to say, of all the tennis scandals out there, match fixing is just not interesting to me. It's I not. don't know why. I love doping stories. I find them so fascinating. But match fixing, I don't know. Just can't get excited about it. Well, maybe you will in the near future. Maybe. Depending maybe. on what comes up. Because... If a big fish is going to be get got, it could happen with this story. Now, I want to say, uh, talk about something we didn't address in the last episode. Somebody pointed out to me that Nick had recently talked about having depression and self-harming in the past and being just in a really super dark place a few years ago. And I don't want to discount, I don't want to ignore it. I don't want to discount it. And I also want to be able to understand that like, people can be a lot of things, right? Like somebody can be suffering quite deeply, but that their behavior can also be called out, especially when they've reached a supposedly happier place, right? I'm not trying to kick somebody while they're down. I'm not trying to discount what he's gone through. Uh, you know, Andy Murray apparently noticed his self-harm scars and really tried to help him through it. And that's amazing for him. And I, you know, I really sympathize with Nick's mom a lot because what, as a mother, I don't know what you do in a situation like that. But like, as we move on, I think it's more helpful to 
be supportive of your child without also saying that everybody's against him all the time? Because I don't think that's true. We were not always against it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've really swung in the opposite direction. Do we want to talk about these semis and quarters? Mm, Yannick Sinner goes up two sets to love against Djokovic. I think we mostly all saw where this was going and it went there quickly. But uh, we do have to acknowledge that Yannick won his first ever match on grass at this tournament, beat Carlos Alcaraz, and took two sets from Novak, who had won this tournament for the previous three times he played it. And now has Darren Cahill signed on full-time in his camp. Yeah, I would say this is turning your career around. And that might be a little bit dramatic, but I think there had been a big stall in his progress in the first half of this year. This is maybe not not turning the career around. It's a momentum change. Turning the Titanic around? Not not quite that big. Darren, for his part, expanded a bit more on the troubles that he has been through that saw him leave his work with Amanda Nisimova earlier in the year. Was Mm -hmm. that this year? Yeah, Yeah. right? In the spring? He said that he realized that he was suffering from depression. He's now back on tour, back in the commenter, back in the commentary booth, and back in the coach's box. So welcome back, Mr. Cahill. I tweeted ahead of the semifinals that Cam, you better put your entire Norussi in it. Mm-hmm. And Apparently at that, that point, was, that was quite popular with Nori Fam. And at that point, he was our last hope because <laughs> Nadal had withdrawn ahead of his semifinal match against Kyrgios due to a abdominal tear. That was so Jamaican. Due to an abdominal tear. Is that better? <laughs> that he had been carrying for a while that progressively got worse. Yes. Given that we were not interested in seeing a Novak Kyrgios final, we uh, <laughs> we had no choice but to throw our entire body servicey behind... Oh. Oh, wow. Behind Kaminori. Mm-hmm. And it did not pan out. Did not. He got a setup on Djokovic, but then, like, as it's, ha- as it's happened, as the tennis world has turned, like, sends through our tennis glasses, Djokovic. Yeah, Novak is not a serve bot, but when he needs to be, he can be a serve bot. He lost six points on serve across the second and third set, combined. The other match of note leading up to the final, the semifinals and the final, was that quarterfinal between Taylor Fritz and Rafa Nadal. <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. So I don't know. I don't recall at what point in the match people started to realize that Nadal was hampered. I think it was in the first set. But he was not serving full speed and his motion had changed. His backhand was a problem as well because it requires like so much twisting. But the forehand looked okay. Abdominal tears are so weird in this way, right? But it is uh, an injury that you will make worse if you continue to play. We had this whole drawn out conversation led by journalists and literally no one else about whether there should be lucky losers late in a slam draw, which to me is a non-starter. Like I don't really think it's worth talking about withdrawals happen sometimes like walkovers happen very very rarely in late stages of majors and we're talking about the main draw of a major here we're not talking about a lucky loser from the qualifying 
getting into the main draw. Qualifying is different. That's a few matches to see who gets to enter the main draw. But in Grand Slam tennis, in the main draw, if you lose, you're done. Like that's one of, it's kind of one of the hallmarks of the way this sport is organized. So to me, I don't really know why we're having the conversation. If, I mean, Taylor Fritz, I almost want to say Swift over and over. Anyway, Taylor Harry Fritz said, no, I lost. Like, why would I re-enter the draw? Much has been made about Rafa Nadal's incomparable fighting spirit, about how he suffers, about how he plays through pain and is often able to overcome. And that's framed as a virtue and something to be celebrated and something to aspire towards. And the older I get, the more I watch this man play and the more I watch this man suffer. And frankly, the more we all suffer in our everyday lives. (laughs) Why is this something we're celebrating? Yeah. And this, this happened in the men's doubles final as well. Matipavich played with a fractured wrist on his non-dominant hand. And again, it was celebrated as this, uh, I mean, it is like a great mental achievement, but should we be celebrating that sort of behavior? In the second set, we see Rafa's father and sister signaling to him from the box, retire, Yeah, get off this court. That's your kin. That's your family. Mm. Those are the ones who know you the most who have your best, your very best interest at heart. And you know that because you subsequently avoid making eye contact with the box for well over a set. Yeah. Because you know that they're right. And they did not look happy. No. Even when he was winning points and hitting thunderous winners, throwing his entire Nadasi into everything. Can I? That's the last one. That's time. the last one. That was the last one. They were just sitting there. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We know this about Rafa that he is he's not stubborn. He's not going to retire in a Grand Slam match unless he absolutely has to. And especially at this stage of his career, when he's won the first two majors of the year, he's just not going to do it. And I'm not saying that he should. You know, I, like a player should make the decision that they want to make within the match because it's also very difficult to diagnose yourself Mm -hmm. during a match, right? Basic bodily autonomy here. Exactly. Simple concept. And this is why I reject that whole, oh, he should have retired and let Taylor go through. No, I mean, as you're playing the match, you don't know what's going on with your body. You're trying to get through it. You don't don't know, oh, I I have a seven millimeter abdominal tear. I'm going to retire and give this match to Taylor. That's not how it works. Like, come on. Or maybe it's just a one millimeter tear, and then maybe you win the semi, and then by the end of the final, it's a seven millimeter tear, and it's not that bad. There's always right. things, conditions, and and what ifs that could swing one way or the other going forward, right? The bottom line here is, this was a match that Taylor Swift should have won. Yeah, and like, he, he knew it. It was a stunning display of ineffectiveness to think and execute on a tennis court in this situation. Like we know, and we've seen it so many times over the years, where when somebody's playing an injured opponent, it becomes tricky. Right. When Rafa was hobbled against Stan in 2014 in the Australian Open final, how did Rafa win that third set? 
Yeah, right. He stuck around for much longer than he should have, right? Right. But it, it becomes tricky to play an opponent who's not doing well yeah. physically. But when you're when you're mentally unable to rise to the chant to the challenge like Taylor Fritz did and execute or even come up with a game plan or even identify what needed to be done in this match instead of just swinging haphazardly all over the place just hitting hitting rallies it's just vibes out there let's just <laughs> let's just hit some shots and what is to be will be Sarah 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 mm-hmm. and that's that's what's going on with this younger generation is that first of all you cannot compete with the type of experience that Nadal and Djokovic have over all these years and all these big Grand Slam matches, but they're just like not mentally getting past the hump. And it's not only fear, it's a lack, it's just a lack of strategy. So not, I don't want to rub more salt in the wound. Taylor is clearly devastated by this loss and it's going to hurt for a little while. Still, it's a very good result for him. He's playing really well. Right, but to expand on what you were saying, the bigger issue here is the ATP is in a dire situation. <laughs> it's in a dire situation. Can anyone do it? Can anyone? Like, who's going to do it? It's in a dire situation. Nadal should have been gotten many times this year with all the matches that he's won. Yes. Djokovic should have lost at this tournament. And I know we should not be dealing with ifs, ands, buts, and shoulda, coulda, wouldas. But when those if and buts, shoulda, coulda, wouldas are never mitigated, they're never interrupted. (laughs) They just happen one after the other, after the other, after the other, as these men, Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, are closer to dentures than diapers. (laughs) That's so rude. I'm just saying. It's it's absolutely absurd at this point. It's it's crazy. It's crazy to me. Mm. And it's... I think we need to move past the narrative that these guys are just so good. It's no longer that anymore. It smarts, honestly. It smarts. Mm-hmm. The two of them are able to just outsmart these people time and time and time again when their body and their physicality betrays them. All right. Speaking of moving on, let's move on from this men's ma- tournament. We talked about Matipavic. He and Mekdic were in the men's doubles final versus Ebden and Purcell. Ebden and Purcell won in a five-set match. They previously had beaten the number one seeds, Rahm and Salisbury, in the semis, also in five sets. Also beat the number three seeds in this tournament. What I really want to talk about is the women's doubles final, though. This was the number one and two teams facing off. Mertens Zhang versus Krejcikova Siniakova. Krejcikova and Siniakova had won four majors together already. This was their fifth. The The Czech team is just so ridiculously good together and such a pleasure to watch because of the way they communicate intuitively. They don't necessarily play like predictable or traditional form of doubles, right? Of course they use the eye formation, but you don't always have a player like Barbara in the backcourt on the baseline who's such a great singles player just swing away for a bunch of strokes in a row, hitting these big swinging ground strokes and being able to 
control the baseline so effectively. And you're playing players who are also very good singles players, right? In Mertens and Jean. And so Barbara, she controls the backcourt fine. You don't need to worry about her. Katarina is posted so close to the net. And if she needs to poach, she poaches. If she needs to hit some weird off balance kind of swinging volley, she'll do that. She'll scramble. It's just, it's a beautiful team to watch. You are well on this bandwagon. You're very <laughs> invested. <laughs> right. Early in the second set, up to two all in the second set, the Czech team hadn't even lost a point off their first serve. So it was, you know, it was fun to watch, but this match was pretty, uh, it was a pretty dominant display by Krejcikova and Sidiakova. And so now we're in a place where Babs has nine majors. And I tweeted this, but that's that's legend status, hun. There's no denying it. And a single slam. Right? Like the Hall of Fame is coming. Oh, no sweat. In mixed doubles, Krochik and Skupski beat Stozer and Ebden. Ebden was also in the men's final, the champion. Sam Stozer, who was playing with Zhang for a long time. If anyone knows why they broke up, I'm very curious because I have no idea. But Sam extended her career just to play doubles. Another great result for her. You wanted to talk about one last thing about Venus and Jamie's mixed doubles tournament? On the previous episode, I went into my usual long-winded spiel about why people should not force people to retire or say that they should retire and that you should mind your own business. In that second round match where Venus and Jamie Mari played Barnett and Omara, the British team... We got an 18-16 deciding tiebreak result. Mm. Venus and Jamie were on the losing end of that, regrettably, saving and losing multiple match points. But at 12-all in that deciding tiebreak, Venus is playing from the baseline and hits a backhand down the line winner to give them match point, and she lets out an almighty roar. The kind that looks like she cannot control herself. She is without control of that impulse to just let it all out on court after experiencing the thrill of that backhand down the line winner at that most crucial moment. Mm -hmm. These are the things that I have never experienced, that you will never experience, that keeps these greats coming back that keeps them from not wanting to hang it up, even though their ranking may be depressed, even though the haters are out in full force. We got to see why we should not tell people to retire in that one moment. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly special. You might say she roared abandonedly. Wow. A a coinage that has never gone out of style. Wow. Uh, She turned her face to the heavens and screamed. Mm Mm-hmm. I watched it at least 50 times. <laughs> we we talked a bit about the ranking points being rescinded for this tournament, and it's had major consequences. Djokovic, despite winning, defending his 2,000 points, theoretically, will drop to number seven. There aren't many people making huge jumps in the rankings this week. It's really the folks who had a bunch of points to defend from last year who were unable to do it because of the new rules. Who now plummet. Right. And what's striking about it are the folks who did well, reached the second week, 
won the tournament, but still fall in the rankings. That's crazy. Yes. And now what I would like to say to those people are to write your senators, call your representatives, um, <laughs> call Steve Simon, call Andrea Gaudenzi, mm. call Novak Djokovic. Maybe Novak should write a memo to himself as president of the PTPA. The point, anyway, the point is not. it was the ATP and WTA's response to the actions right. that Wimbledon took unilaterally. These ranking points got caught up in the war, the turf war, between the Grand Slams and the Tours. Yeah. So Wimbledon basically said, the government told us what we should do, so we should do it. Wimbledon is practically a crown corporation. (laughs) The ATP and WTA said, you violated the contract that we have with you, and we're going to take the only recourse that we have and rescind ranking points from your event. And here we are. The players, I mean, the people who will suffer the most are people like you know, ranked outside of the top 50. Tatiana Maria, who gets no points for going to the semis. Uh, Tom Lanovich, who will lose a bunch of spots, drop to 71. Even though she made the quarterfinals as she did last year. Right. Uh, David Goffin gets to the quarterfinals, will drop 13 spots. Garin gets to the quarterfinals, (laughs) will also drop 13 spots. Kyrgios, a finalist, drops five spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shapovalov. Down to number 23. Seven spots. And that sucks for him, but it probably is also reflective of where he should be at the moment. <laughs> you guys are all corrupt. <laughs> all of you. Jabour as well. Number two before the tournament. Number five after yeah. making the final. You know, this this is where we are. It's a weird situation. It's an unfortunate situation. There is a, a war going on. And uh, here we are. This Telegraph story about why Serena didn't go to the Wimbledon centenary celebration is too much. <laughs> this, is, this is the sort of tabloidy bullshit that you always get at Wimbledon and that Serena can inspire like no other player, right? This is what we were talking about when news broke that Serena was going to be playing Wimbledon. We were like, oh my god, here we go. It's here like, we go. Spin the wheel of fortune. What is going to be the controversy du jour? Because it's not... It's almost never about just what happens on court with Serena. It's about how people talk about her. Yes. And the mess that accompanies that. And this certainly qualifies. This time, it was because she didn't attend this celebration of 100 years at the current site of Wimbledon, 100 years of center court, which saw Roger Federer make a surprise appearance. Margaret Court boarded her steamship from Australia. Oh Some Oh my God, somebody said her Zeppelin. I couldn't deal with it. Uh, <laughs> Margaret Court will go to anything. We we know this, right? Billie Jean King was there. Martina was supposed to be there, but she was in her COVID sickbed. Chrissy Everett was there. It was it was exciting to see all those people. Venus was there? But she was. She, she sure was, was. It was a day that she lost that second round match. And so she showed up earlier in the day wearing something very sporty and very cute. Oh, I mean, she looked. Absolutely stunning. stunning. Yes. But everybody wants to know, where is Serena? Is she still in London? And then, yeah, Serena shows up posting all over the city. She's going, I mean, she's going to every event she can think of. She went to some movie premiere. She was in Hyde Park. She probably toured the Tower of London. I don't know. She was doing everything. She wanted to make it known that she was still in Wimbledon, but did not go. What I don't get is like, why did she have to go? 
I understand that a lot of players would want to be there, but like, was this a requirement? Is this her court? Am I being stupid? I was just like, people are like, why wasn't she there? I'm like, who, literally, who cares? Um, okay, okay. You're doing a lot here <laughs> because I'm sure you yourself wondered, where's Serena? How come she's not there? That's a normal reaction to have. Okay, but then it verged into criticism, right? So you get this. I'm leading you to the water to drink. Well, no, but as an observer, I didn't even know this thing was happening. Okay, so but, then everyone's like, why wasn't she there? I'm like, sure. I don't even know what this is. What are you talking about? Sure, but it happened and you see that everybody's there mm. and you know that Serena was just there. And so it's a normal thing to wonder, oh, like, did she leave England already? Like, where is she? Mm-hmm. So this hatchet job in the Telegraph wanted to explain why she didn't go and then get in a few other digs for no reason. Apparently she had demanded five courtesy cars during the tournament and she demanded that those cars continue throughout the fortnight even though she lost and the all-in club you know they're being super stingy about food right in the players area like is money a sip here is your per diem you have 90 pounds per day but don't you dare spend it oh my god like i know that the pound sterling has lost value recently and the johnson government literally collapsed during wimbledon but are they that hard up and I'm I saying, like, you probably shouldn't use five cars. It's not very environmentally friendly, whatever. But if she asked for five and she didn't get them, well. She didn't get them. She didn't want to go to the centenary either. She didn't get them. <laughs> right. Like. So she didn't get them. Do you think that Ms. Margaret Court paid for her flight from Australia? Absolutely not. I mean, I do think she would take from the church's coffers to get this attention. Um, I do think she would. No, But no, the point is that she didn't. Oh, okay. Do we, we, who's, no. As per who's reporting. Prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was just such a weird thing to like, a weird hill to die on for them, right? And so she called their bluff, apparently. Even if that is even a true story. Because it's all anonymous sources. But then the writer says, oh, and she likes to control her own press conferences and call on the people. And like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? They just wanted to talk shit about Serena. It's clickbait, James. It was... I didn't clickbait. click. Somebody somebody screenshotted it, and I read it for free. And now we're giving it life. <laughs> Don't click on it, though. I told you what was in it. You have a correction to issue. I do. Last episode, I said that Boskova beat Krejcikova. Sorry, false. It was Ila Tomdanovich who beat Krejcikova. Mm-hmm. If we're factually wrong, we always correct ourselves. If we're morally wrong, it's a it's a gray area. It's it's more tricky <laughs> with that. Um, I mean, I'm, it's just frankly, James, unacceptable. Like these are I'll, simple fact checking errors. I'll do better on a part of the episode. I might add that you edited, and you so know you what's had funny? Every opportunity to get this right. What's funny is that I printed the draws again. Right? I was like, "Do you think I need to print the draws?" And you're like, "No, no, it's fine." And I'm like, "Well, but." I'll print the ones with the results filled in. And then I let you have them. And I just rattled off this inaccurate statement because I wasn't looking at the draw. Oh, wow. So what's not being spoken here is that he's blaming me because I had the documentation in front of me and I should have caught it. No, I mean, I... And there is some truth in that. Right. I will cop to that. But I would also like the folks to receive that you are being extremely messy right now. I am. I prepared and then I fumbled at the one yard line 
How about that? That's was, a, that's a sport. It was not that tragic to fumble at the one. I fumbled line. at the fifty yard line. It was just a turnover in the first quarter. That's it. We came back to okay. win the game. It was a pop fly on the one. That's out. that's enough. <laughs> Final bit of news. For the first time, the body serve will be present at a Grand Slam because I will be going to New York. Not as press, but as a fan. And I'm excited. Yeah. Right now it's just the serve. <laughs> We're not sure if I can go. Oh, you're the body? Yeah. Uh, I'm the serve, you're the body? Well, I don't know. I never, I haven't really thought about it. But uh, you will definitely be there. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I Barring will. Barring some crazy world occurrence. Well, I sure. I mean, anything can happen these That's days. That's the plan. Your body is still betraying you, so you can't make the trip right now. Yes, yes. That brings us to the end of Wimbledon 2022. Congrats to Elena Rybakina and Novak Djokovic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I said it. Okay. I got it out. Thank you for listening. Uh, You can find everything BodyServe at linktree.com slash thebodyServe. I am James at ElliotJMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I am Jonathan at tennis underscore John. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.